0: This episode is brought to you by Arden Labs Education. Sign up today to learn advanced concepts in Go, Docker, Kubernetes, Terraform, and more. Visit ardenlabs.com forward slash education for more information.
1: Hi, I'm Bill Kennedy with the Arden Labs podcast. And today, our special guest is Kelsey Hightower. Hey, Kelsey, how's it going?
0: Hey, how you doing?
1: Where are you uh, coming to us from today? You're still in Seattle, right?
0: Close. I'm about two hours south of Seattle, right over the border of Portland, Oregon.
1: Nice, nice. Okay. As you know, this is a podcast that's going to be all about you, and the idea of hearing your kind of your journey, your story, uh, with, with the idea also that others are probably some people are on the same path and. It's kind of really nice to hear how others kind of moved through their careers and and through life. But before we start that conversation, can you give everybody like the two minute rundown about kind of where you are today and what you're doing today?
0: Yeah, so I'm a principal engineer over at Google Cloud, where I've been about six years now. Uh, So I primarily work in, you know, what they call GCP. My specialties right now are like serverless. So this is going to be things like Cloud Run, you know, Cloud Functions. And I spent a lot of my time in the Kubernetes space, so that whole containerization movement. And I also work with a lot of our customers that are trying to understand SRE and modern change management techniques. And of course, you know the Go programming language is uh, still my favorite tool of choice when integrating with all of those things.
1: Are you doing a lot of programming today? Are you are you able to do that?
0: Yeah, most of my stuff is prototyping. You know, when we do design docs. They're really enhanced when you have like a working prototype that you can actually touch. Uh, there's also some things that I still contribute to. For example, if there's something in the open source community that I'm trying to make work well on GCP, I think most recently this year, I contributed some commits to Open Policy Agent. For those not familiar, it's a tool to give people the ability to do granular like access control policies from their applications. Um, So adding integrations, you know, where it just kind of makes sense to do it upstream in the open source project, just to make sure that it works well out of the box on GCP. That's where I spend most of my time. And of course, prototyping for some of our customers' architectural patterns when they want to apply them to GCP. But open source maintainership, uh, that world I'm a little bit stepping away from. It just takes so much effort to maintain libraries and tools that other people use.
1: Are you working with customers kind of day in and day out too, to make sure they're successful? Is that some of the work you're doing?
0: Yeah, I think that's always been the combination that I've always strived for. So as an engineer, whether I was working with internal customers or since the days of joining product companies like Puppet Labs and CoreOS, I've kind of always seen the customers and the engineering work to go hand in hand. It's like the ultimate feedback loop, right? We're building tools for people But it's also good to understand what they're currently using. If they're not using your current tools and just to get real world use cases, because I'm not necessarily wearing a pager anymore.
1: Is this, I'm going to assume that this is the role that you love the best, that just being a heads down engineer at a desk day in and day out, isn't what you wanted to do, because if it was, you'd probably be doing that. So these interactions with people and companies and seeing success, I'm guessing that's what you really love.
0: Yeah, but, you know, it's all about where you are in your life and your career. You know, when I first started, it was all about, you know, low-level, whether it was Linux kernel stuff or, you know, writing low-level Python integrations, contributing to the standard library. And I got real far in my career, just kind of being heads down, what's the next feature? What's the next bug that needs to be fixed? But I also understood that when you're really trying to impact the whole organization, and in some cases, the whole industry... You also got to be willing to kind of lift your head up and look around to see what the other trends are, uh, what's replacing the thing that you're currently working on. So as much as I love kind of writing code and zooming in, it's just that once I zoomed out and saw the whole industry for what it was, it's hard to go back in. You are, you can't unsee that. And so it just seemed like there was way more opportunities beyond my keyboard.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So we're gonna, we're gonna get to that let's say, near the end of the hour. But I want, I want to put you in the what I call the time machine here. Start thinking back a little bit. And my very favorite first question for this podcast is for you to think about that first memory, right, that first memory, the first one that comes inside your mind of you kind of working on a computer. And, and, and try to give us uh, a little bit if you can remember maybe kind of how old you were when, when that is. It could have been anything, playing a game, having fun, actually solving a problem. That first, first memory.
0: Yeah. My first memory is probably in elementary school playing like Oregon trail. You know, you got this computer, I think it's probably like a couple of colors, maybe the whole monotone thing. And you're just like clicking through this adventure and the actions that you take impact what's happening on the screen. And that was kind of my first interaction with like the, you know, what most people think of a, you know, a classical personal computer. You have a monitor, keyboard, mouse, and I'm in elementary school. So everyone gets like, I don't know, 30 minutes inside of the computer lab. So you go in there and you're not quite sure what to expect. And they just throw on this game. You're like, all right, this is cool. What is this about? And if I think back outside of Nintendo, this is like the first kind of computer game that I'm playing And then it it seems like the game is changing based on what I'm doing versus being pre-scripted, like something like Mario, right? Even though we know Oregon Trail only has so many branches, but as a kid, it's like you are in control. Like what you do affects what you see on the screen. And so that's my earliest kind of memory of using a computer.
1: So just to kind of put some time in perspective, what, what year did you graduate high school?
0: Yeah, I graduated in 99. So this, this, this Oregon Trail is probably like early nineties.
1: Yeah, early nineties. Do you remember the kind of computer you were running on? Because that's pretty good early nineties to have the the lab already. I don't actually remember the
0: computer. My guess is probably like a, a Apple, you know, two or something. One of those classic, you know, school system issued uh, computers that they would staff in their labs. And I think this is well before, you know, the Microsoft kind of take over. Because I didn't touch Windows until like Windows ninety five.
1: Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so. I feel like you had that connection there. Is this something that you just can kind of continue to do through, say, elementary school and and middle school, getting in the labs and playing games? When did you get a computer at home for the first time? Do you remember that?
0: Yeah, so that's the thing. I was never into computers until like 10th grade of high school, right? When I was growing up, we were outside. I was outside. Right, So it was, I found it way more interesting to go play basketball at the local park for four or five hours, then maybe ro- walk to go grab something to eat with your friends and just stay out as long as legally possible, right? Like your mom, it's like, you got to be home by the time the streetlights come on. So that was, that was our approximation for how long we were going to be outside for. So for me, computers thing coming to the picture, not in the sense of like, uh, this is something that you could do as a hobby, right? It was just something like, oh, part of school, you go do it a little bit. And the reason why I got into computers in, in the 10th grade was because when I moved from Long Beach, California to Atlanta, Georgia, there was like a gap in school. So I had to had the grades, I was a straight A student, but there's like a whole half a year that's missing. And so when I got to high school, you know, I need to make sure I had enough credits to graduate, regardless of what your grades are, you got to have enough credits. So this is when I got into what they call uh, the Technology Student Association, TSA, and that program was basically almost like an exploratory will, you would learn things like AutoCAD and we were programming our calculators, you know, TI basic. And we did things like, you know, the debate team, but we just kind of had this exposure to the full landscape of technology. And I was like, Hey, after track practice, I would just go to the, the club meetings and get those extra credits. And I think at around that point, I took interest like, wow, this could actually you know, be something you could do full time. I actually found that I liked this idea of like programming, you know, doing something and then seeing the outcome of it. That feedback loop, I think was uh, something that I wanted to continue after that point.
1: All right, let me, let me step you back a little bit before you make that move to Long Beach in, in this high school, right? Cause that's, you moved, I remember as a kid, like, okay. I grew up in the seventies, right? Like I'm like that age in the seventies. And it was for me, the same thing. My mom kicked me out of the house in the morning until she screamed for every neighbor could hear up two miles away right we didn't come home like if you walked in the house it was like leave you know and and it wasn't because they didn't want us around go out and play right and my kid my first kid was born in 94 I did the same thing with my kids like go out and play like have that experience and I tell you I don't see that anymore right like at least here in Miami and I know it's hot right now whatever but you rarely see kids out anymore you rarely see kids on their bikes anymore in fact, parents are kind of paranoid about it, and their kids. You must have been all over the neighborhood when you were a kid like me, right? Like, like just get on your bike and just go wherever you wanted to go.
0: Oh, yeah. We would we ride a bike for miles. You know, yeah. like you had a friend that lived a couple miles away. You know, no GPS, right? This is not smartphone. So, you know, I was born in 81. So by that time, you know, I'm walking home from middle school. Right, as soon as you get home, you kind of you know do your homework as quick as possible. You know, wash the dishes, do the chores, and then you're out again. Right, you're 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 outside. And I remember in my where I lived in Long Beach, every few blocks it felt like the neighborhood had a different vibe. Right, two blocks away, there would be kids on skateboards trying to pretend they're Tony Hawk. You go a couple more blocks over, and then people are playing basketball on the street. A couple more blocks over by the train tracks. People were playing like inline, you know, in-street football. We used to call it sideline pop, right? Like, you know, it's it's touch in the street, but if you get by the grass, all bets are off (laughs) and you go flying.
1: Yeah, yeah. We used to have neighborhood competitions playing football and hockey, street hockey, where like the kids on that other block over there, they would have a team and we'd have a team and we would compete or go to the high school and get into the tennis courts and do that kind of stuff too. I just don't see it happening anymore. It's... I don't know, I feel like there's something lost because of that, you know?
0: Yeah, I blame maybe those like CSI shows, you know, people are at home and you're watching kids get kidnapped. And when you see that so often, you believe that the chances are very high that's gonna happen to your child. And I also think there's just so many in-house forms of entertainment, you know, between like Xbox and PlayStation and all these things you could do inside. I think people kinda, you know, maybe consume a little too much. And also we have these communication devices now. Cause I remember you wanted to talk to your friends. You had to like, go over there, knock on their door and like ask their parents, like, can they come outside? Like, I haven't seen them in a day. Right. It would be nice if they could come outside. So I think since that was like really the only way, right. You didn't call anyone and like talk on the phone that was out. It's like, if you're not outside, you missed it.
1: Well, that phone call cost you 25 cents anyway. So why am I going to pay 25 cents when I can just run next door and knock on the door? Like Phone calls today are like unlimited for a set price. But back then, depending on the exchange, right, you were paying. It's just interesting how things have changed like that. But let's let's get back. Why did you end up changing high schools in 10th grade? I feel like you've established relationships. 10th grade's got to be a tough time to kind of switch high schools. I mean, what's going on there?
0: Well, you know, you have family things. You know, my parents were divorced at the time. My mom wanted to move back to Atlanta, where all her family was, and so ninth grade, you're right. I built a bunch of relationships. I was playing three sports. You know, our team had just won the basketball championship, and so leaving, kind of in the middle of all of that, you're like leaving your life behind because you make all of these plans about what you're going to be doing after high school, and then. Now you're about to move 3,000 miles away to the other side of the country. And in addition to just switching schools, there's like a huge culture shock. Like Southern California at that time, the way people thought, talked, spoke, slang, everything, was just drastically different than what it was when I got to Atlanta. Um, I mean, there's some pros to it. You know, I met my wife that I'm married now. I met her in high school. You know, we had a break in between. But a lot of my friendships, the long living friendships come from that time in Atlanta. So it wasn't a total loss, but yes, for someone that's around 14 years old, moving across the country in the middle of a school year is tough.
1: You know, real tough, especially if you were having success in sports and because now you're coming again, and there there is a huge mind shift too between West Coast, East Coast. When you get into high school then, are you thinking I'm gonna jump back into sports or at this point, I'm not gonna, It's amazing to me, right? Like you have to reestablish all of that. Did you try out for all those teams again that, that first year? I
0: ran track. So when I got there, I think track season was on. So I did track. But one thing that I also wanted to do was start working as immediately as possible. You know, at that point in time, I have a single mom and clothes are expensive. You know, life is expensive for one person to try to provide for, you know, two boys. Right. So I have a brother who's a couple of years older. And so, you know, I think about my ability, I learned that, hey, next year, I can get a work permit, and I can start working. And I got my first job at the McDonald's down the street, right? It's walkable, and they had hours that could accommodate. No one wants to work weekends, so I could load up thin. So I started prioritizing the ability to earn money, to help out, buy my own school clothes, get some independence. And so I started to deprioritize things like sports, like, look, I'm only 5'9", so my professional athlete choices were shrinking at that point. So I got really realistic. And the concept of working and earning income uh, was pretty appealing.
1: How many hours a week are you were working then? You were working like 10, 15, I mean, at that age, I don't think you can work more than.
0: Man, I was pushing the legal limits all day. <laughs> I think As soon as high school got out, I would get off the bus, go home. I think I had about an hour to change. And then walk to work. Sometimes people in the neighborhood would give me a ride. So I got there on time. And I remember going in like, like at five o'clock, getting off at nine. And then I think a year later, I was the shift manager. So I had the keys and I would close down the store. And it wasn't always 24 hours. I think maybe around nine or 10, you know, we would shut down and my mom would just kind of pick me up at night and, and bring me back home. And then on the weekends, no manager wanted to work. So I was like, hey, I'll take a double chip. You know what I mean? I'll come in open, get there at 5 a.m., prep everything, and stay through the lunch rush. And then right before that evening rush, I was out. So for me, I try to work as many hours as possible. So I'm pretty sure there were a few weeks where I'm getting overtime because I wanted to push it to the limit because I just wanted to max out.
1: So you're doing this 14, 15, 16, like through, through high school.
0: Yeah, I did fast food quite a bit. I mean, those were the things that were accessible. You know, eventually I saved up enough money. I bought my first car. I was flipping through auto trader, you know, like the physical <laughs> place where people used to advertise their cars. And I remember my first car was like a, I think it was like an 86 Jeep Cherokee, the box four door. And one of my buddies drove me about, I don't know, it felt like 40 miles north. And we went to go buy, I bought the car cash. I had like 1200 bucks. I paid him cash and i'm driving home realizing i don't have insurance don't have a license plate and i don't have a <laughs> driver's license you know i in, you know this this is not a good combination you know i got those things taken care of uh but yeah that was that was kind of my goal so once i had the car i felt like i could actually kind of branch out and maybe get jobs that were further away than walking distance
1: but you bought that car without all that other this is where parents come in right this is where i try not to be a pain to my kids sometimes because they want to do things. And I'm like, you're not thinking about these dozen other things you have, right? And they don't want to think about it. Like, they don't They don't care. But is your mom, like, saying to you, you can't buy a car? Like, what are, you, what are you doing? So the thing is, my
0: mom worked as much as she possibly could as well, right? You're a single mom. You got all the things to pay. And so, honestly, I just don't think she had the time to walk through all of those details. And to be honest, the priority for her was like, you're not a statistic. No one's in jail. There are no police knocking at my door. We're kind of good here, right? And I'm not sure she even knew the things that I kind of needed to be taught at that time. And so that's saying where it takes a village. I think my store manager at the time when I was working at McDonald's, he did a good job kind of teaching me i'm like my first bank account. I remember he was like the custodian on that bank account, right? I went to SunTrust Bank in the South. I got all of these paychecks and I didn't wanna spend any money. So I was just like, where do I put it? So I got checks uncashed in my drawer and I'm just looking at, oh, these things expire like 180 days. And so I remember him taking me to get my first uh, bank account. He didn't look at the password or anything. He says, this is all you, but you know, you're not old enough to go get one of those things. So he kind of filled in a little bit in terms of helping me learn some uh, kind of things that you needed to learn in life.
1: That's amazing. Like. I'd, I'd like to think there are still people out there today that would do that. I mean, I, I, I'll i do that for people, but it's, that's nice, man, because, yeah, I mean, I tell people all the time, you can't do everything on your own. There, there's people, you need help, you need help. So you had that. Alright, so then, you're working all these hours in 10th grade. Talk to me about this this program that you said that you were a part of in 10th grade. It started getting into computers. How'd you, how did you find that program, and what kind of attracted you to that? Because now that's I'm assuming that's more time in school than out of school, but kind of talk about that. Because I don't even know when you're doing your homework, unless you've got a homeroom and you're able to knock it all out. So it's just adding more.
0: But I was one of those kids that just thought it was all just too easy. You know, to me, it's one of those things where it's like most of the test, you can tell that there's not a lot of thought outside of read the chapter, remember a few things, and you're probably going to get an A. That's, it came naturally for me. So I was lucky in that regard. And so when it came to homework, it was one of those things that I could breeze through fairly quickly. Uh, It was also something that when the test came, I knew how to kind of study and just remember just enough to get the A that I wanted. So I always felt that that point came easy. And also, when I was working at McDonald's, you know, when you're the shift manager and you're not walking the floor, we had like an office. And that's where you counted down the register. And we used to fax numbers over to corporate. And I remember at that point, I would do homework back there. Right? I would open up the homework and like, let me finish up my math or whatever I got to do. I'll look out my door just to make sure everything was kind of running smoothly. And I would just kind of do my homework in between, right? I'm still working four hours after school. So it's real easy for me to jump in and get the homework done. And so when it became time for picking electives, and I remember having a conversation, I don't know, maybe it's with one of the uh, like school administrators or like, hey, where do we place you? You missed half a year, but you have the grades Do we start you over? Do you go to the next grade? And so we were really adamant about me just continuing where I left off and not starting over, just, you know, want to be left behind. And so what are my options to make up these credits? And one option was to take this, you know, Technology Student Association, TSA. And I looked at the program and part of it was after school program, and you would be learning all of these various skills in preparation for the statewide challenge. And there was a statewide challenge where you would go and compete with other people. We used to drive to this place called Jekyll Island. It was probably like an hour and a half away, maybe a little further. And we would go on like this field trip with other people that were in the club. So I'm in this weird duality at this point, right? Outside of this club, I'm playing sports. I'm making money. I'm buying name brand clothes. You know, I'm trying to talk to the ladies, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be cool. And then I get to this club where, you know, people are trying to like show off their TI 86 basic programs. And you're like, okay, this is what we're doing now. Uh, but it was cool though, because I identified with both of those worlds at the same time. So on this field trip, you're trying to teach your TSA club members like what cool is. <laughs> and so we get there, and I remember I was competing in the AutoCAD competition. I really gravitated to AutoCAD because you had to take a specification and you had to kind of do the outline, uh, do the diagram, get the dimensions right, annotate it correctly, and just do everything that a professional would do. And I remember not understanding how good I was until we get to this competition because you're just kind of playing around in the club. You don't really know what your skills are. You haven't been tested nor measured like I was when you're running track. It's really easy to know how fast you are, depending on where you place on that field. But we didn't have the same feedback loop in TSA. So when we get there, I remember coming in like third place. My diagram was much better. I was much further along on the problem, but didn't have a printer. And I remember even without printing out, which was part of the challenge, uh, you know, you have to print on the plotter and you had to make sure that you got everything correct. And even with that, instead of being disqualified, I think I ended up getting like third or second place. And I was like, "Wow, I'm really good at this thing, and this computer thing might be a long-term game plan, especially if these other things don't work out, such as being a professional athlete." And I also didn't see myself working at fast food forever.
1: Yeah, I was wondering if you were thinking like fast tracking through McDonald's because I mean, you can make a really good salary, you know, managing these stores and regional managers. I've told some of my kids, I go like. like that is a path you can take through retail like like you get to a regional level at at retail you're making very good money I mean it's a tough job don't get me wrong and there's not a lot of them but I was I was going to ask you were you thinking as you're as you're nearing the end of high school that you're going to kind of stay inside the McDonald's corporation or are you thinking university like what are you thinking as you get near the end of high school
0: So the one thing is I never knew anyone that was a professional in the computer space. So I don't even know that's a job or job titles. You just know there are people who do it, but I didn't understand what the path would be to there. So just like many people, when you become a shift manager at McDonald's, you do have to like study like how everything works. There's like a huge management training book and it teaches you things about cook time and how much things cost, like how much bread costs, how much those patties cost. Um, and so you're studying all of that, yeah, you're starting to talk to like your store manager and asking, you know, what's the career path? What is it like to get to the level that he, they were? And I remember when the regional managers would always stop in to check on things, everyone would treat them like, oh my God, the the regional manager is here, all hands on deck, everything has to be super clean. And that person would roll in like they own the world, right? Like. I'm the regional manager. So you kind of saw in a very direct way, what the kind of progression was for one's career. And people would always tell you, this person started out in this store and then they kind of made their way up to becoming the regional manager. So, you know, in the back of my mind, I always thought that was something that I could just kind of work hard, uh, be diligent. And then of course that would be a thing, but I didn't just work at McDonald's. I worked at Subway and I worked at like a Pizza Hut And each of those stops, the people who either ran those franchises, they always taught me a little bit more about life. Subway was really special because, you know, even after work, I remember the store owner let me use his car for prom. And he would always give me like these life lessons about, you know, one lesson he told me about like how to stay out of trouble. He was like, just if you go to the mall and your friend doesn't have any money, give him $10 just so he doesn't walk in the mall broke. And he kind of explained to me that if you don't have money in your pocket and you want something, and you really want something, you could end up in a bad situation. So he always taught me just to make sure that the people around me were in a good spot and just to think through every situation proactively. And that kind of gave me a lot of situational awareness. And then at Pizza Hut, I remember, maybe I was playing around on the job or I wasn't taking it serious. And the, store, and the store manager at that time told me, he was like, Listen, this is my job. He was like 45, maybe 50 years old. He's like, This is my job. This is my career. That is not what's destined for you, though. This doesn't have to be your career. You have so many more options outside of working here. Your whole life is in front of you. I don't want you to think that this job is where you're going to end up at the end. This is what you're doing for now. And I encourage you to look past this. The reason why you're ta- not taking it serious is probably because this is not the end for you. And that's a good thing. So he put me into perspective that, that was gonna be the last fast food job I was gonna ever have, because he really made it clear that, do you really see yourself working here for another 25 years? And nothing wrong with that job, he just wanted me to understand what my true potential was. So I think I was just really learning from those store managers as I started to get a little older. So by the time I hit 18, I was really like, it's time to put these life lessons into effect.
1: I feel like you were a very mature teenager because I don't know if I was that mature enough to really sit down and listen to people who were maybe mentoring me at the time, like me kind of blowing them off a little bit. I know better, right? Like my boys love to always say they know better than me, right? There's a maturity level that comes with that. I mean, you were mature enough to be going to school, getting your homework done, doing the things you want. Do you feel like you were like mature at the time or –
0: Yeah, I think you had to be. You know, I I did grow up for a big period of my life where I have a stepfather, and he was from Nigeria, and his values about working hard and how to work hard and what quality looked like, I learned a lot of that from him, but also in the neighborhood. Remember, Long Beach, California, early 90s, there's gangs on a lot of the corners. You don't pay attention to the rules. That's a problem. So when someone tells you you don't walk down that particular street we're in that particular set of colors, that's that's real, because we felt like that was a life and death lesson. This wasn't something to be played with. So you kind of understood the rules in the street. Also, when you had disputes, you, know, you have to settle those. Sometimes you would fight for three minutes. That was the thing, right? It's like, hey, you two are mad at each other, that ends now. And so there's just all these rules about how to carry yourself in a way, and also playing sports. Every coach was also a mentor, right? They're not just teaching you how to play the game, most coaches are actually teaching you how to live life, right? How to be there for your teammates, how to make sure that you're putting in the work. So when it's game time, you do your part that's on the field. So I think I would just did a good job of learning because when I played sports, you're not always the best. You're not always the fastest. And so when you lose a game or you lose a race, that's a very humbling situation. So when you show up at practice, it's like, dude, you lost. You should be listening right now. You, you, you got like, you totally didn't win. And so, you always knew, at least for me as an athlete, I always knew that you could always get better. And so, I used to appreciate people who were trying to contribute in that growth. And so, just going throughout life, I just think eventually from playing sports, you know, being outside and understanding the environment around me, you just start paying attention to things. And I think that maturity comes from not just paying attention. But also listening to people as they try to help you kind of speed up your ability to execute and be aware of what's around you.
1: It seems like at least in high school you're you're in this program. It seems more mechanical engineering than computer science, right? You're you're diagramming. Is it what what were the what were the things you were autocadding? Were they you know, like what are some of the things you were Auto using AutoCAD for?
0: So the one thing that I liked about TSA was they didn't try to put tech in a box. What I see these days are people are trying to assign technology to one particular field. And what the TSA did, and this is before we started talking about STEM and all of this other stuff, they were just like, there is technology. If you wanna build a bridge, you need to learn how to design a bridge. And in order to design a bridge, you need to learn how to use tools like AutoCAD. And I remember you would produce something in AutoCAD, then you would try to build the structure, and then you would put that bridge in the stress test to see when it would break, And see if that feedback loop will help you with your design. There was another thing you could do, which was uh, learn TI basics. So you can make programs in your calculator, right? First, you start off by copying and pasting, and then you try to write your own programs. And it's almost like they gave us this exploratory will. Another part of that was like how to communicate. Like there was a debate team about making a business decision and what role everyone played in arriving to that decision and then presenting that decision to the judges to decide, you know, did you do a good job or not? So they gave us kind of the full spectrum of how technology is incorporated in everyday life. It was not until much later that I started to understand like the vendor stuff, like, oh, there's Microsoft and it has its own ecosystem. Uh, that came a little bit later.
1: All right, so as you're now getting near the end of high school, what is going in your, what, what are you kind of leaning towards at this point?
0: When I'm coming out of high school, for me, at eighteen, you're leaving the house. That's that 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 was that was going to happen.
1: Really, That was on you, or that was your mom. Because I've met some people whose like parents said, "I don't care what's going on. At eighteen, you're out." Yes, yeah,
0: so I, I don't know if my mom was, you know, too mean about it, but it was definitely like that's what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Like you're kind of being prepped, like it's time to move out. Because of course, at that point, you want to make your own decisions. You want to hang out at certain times it gets to a point where it's like now you're grown and maybe she doesn't want roommates. And so you're at this kind of pivotal point. And also in Georgia at the time, if you had a 3.0 and above, then college was free. They would pay for you to go to most public schools. So I had these options where I could just go and capitalize on you know, the free education and just live nearby on campus. And so that's what I did. I remember that summer, it was like, you could get that apartment a little early move in and then start classes. And since it was free, I kind of felt like, hey, why not like try it? And I'm still working fast food, I'm enrolled. And I remember the first two weeks I was like, this ain't for me. Cause I went to school for quote unquote computer science. But I remember those first classes were like Microsoft Excel. (laughs) And I'm sitting here like, "I I don't know what this is. If this is computer science, I want no part of it And so I remember after two weeks, I was like, you know what, I'm just not going to go to any other classes, keep my apartment on campus, and just continue to work. And I came up with another formula, which was, I'm just going to go get my own IT certification, right? A plus, network plus, and I'm going to make that be my path because that seems like I'm going to get more of the skills I'm looking for faster.
1: So that's what you did then. You kind of just stopped going to classes at university and you wanted to... One of these IT schools, right? Which is like what a one or two year program as well, aren't they? But that you have to pay.
0: Well, I had to have money for the IT school, so that didn't happen. I went to Barnes and Noble, like the bookstore, and I just got the A plus certification guide. And I remember getting that book. It's like, look, if you get this book, and you will you will probably pass the test. And so I got the book and it's super thick. This thing's like three or four hundred pages. And I remember flipping through it. And I was so fascinated by the diagrams, like here's a motherboard, here's a CPU. This is how memory works. Here's what zeros and ones are. And so you're kind of learning about the hardware in the first half of the test. And then you learn about software in the other half. And so I was like, this is perfect. Like, this is the stuff that I wanted to learn. So I remember paying for that book. And then I was on it all my free time. I was just flipping through and learning and you could buy these kind of, um, you know, there were cds you could buy that would give you a simulation of the exams and they're multiple choice and so you would learn a little bit in the book and then you would go take one of these exams and then you could randomize it and so i remember getting to the point where i felt very confident about where i was in terms of my kind of self-taught education and so when i went to go pay for the exam and i passed i was like Yo, i feel like i accomplished something and that made me go out and get like the network plus certification. And I remember after getting the network plus certification where you would go take these things, they were at those schools that used to teach people like those crash course style. And then you would turn around and take the test like on Friday or something. And I remember AT&T was having like a job fair and AT&T at the point, this is where, you know, it was called bell South. This is when DSL was rolling out for the first time. And so the people who are really good at like, you know, installing telephones and dealing with those things. They didn't have experience with computers. So they went to these little code, these kind of um, crash course schools or tech farms or whatever, and they would ask people, if you have your A plus and network plus, we want to talk to you. And they would do a really quick interview and say, all right, we'll take those four and you would get a job installing DSL or you drive to someone's home, uh, hook up the DSL modem and then install some software on the computer and make sure they were online. And it paid like $50 uh, for repairs and $100 for new installs. Man, we were making money as teenagers driving around uh, with these new uh, certifications we just got.
1: All right, couple of things, couple of things, couple of things. When you're, how long did it take you to study to get to pass those exams? Because you're doing this now in what, 99, 2000? And did you have a computer in your place at that point too? Or are you trying to leverage the school's labs?
0: Yeah, so at this point, I'm out of high school. You know, you're living in on campus, you got, you know, one four bedrooms, one of them is yours inside of these kind of on-campus apartment buildings. And, you know, you're standing there with some friends from high school, so that's kind of cool. And I remember, it's funny, I don't actually remember having a computer. I think i remember just kind of going through and just going through the multiple choice in the back of the book because i think there's like a checklist so like where you can just answer the questions and check if you got them right so i don't actually remember like really really using a computer because it's more about just reading taking notes and then being able to identify the right answer i don't think i got like my own computer i think i got a laptop a little later on because these things are super expensive but i remember getting a laptop at some point and I remember because I used to play Age of Empires <laughs> on that on that laptop. And yeah, but I think at that time I was just acquiring knowledge, but it didn't quite get to the point where I started dealing with like operating systems until, you know, halfway through uh, that contractor gig.
1: So, it, so you're contracted with Bell South to go into somebody's house and make sure the DSL is working all through the, the phone, right? You'd have to go to the DMARC, I guess, hook that up figure out where they want to put that modem, all that. So how long did you do that for? Because that's that's super interesting.
0: It might have been about a year. So when I got that, you know, you're making decent money because some days we would do like eight installs. And this is like 99, 2000, maybe a little later, 2001-ish. And I think like making that much money, you're like, wow, what do I do with it all? So, you know, I'm saving at this point. And I remember distinctly going to certain small businesses, like imagine like a small local insurance company or a guy owns like 12 locations. So you go in there, you hook up their networking, you get them all set up and they will always ask, Hey, could you hook up the printer? Do you know how to connect multiple offices together? And I'm like, yeah. And of course I didn't, but I figured I could learn. I knew more than they did for sure. And so I remember then learning all the Microsoft stuff, right? Lots of people have the like Microsoft server. And they wanted to do things like remote desktop, or they wanted to share like one database. And it was in the central office and everyone would like remote in and connect to it. But either way, it was all this opportunity. So of course, that wasn't like a Bell South service. So what I did was like, you know what? I just started like a side consultancy. I was like, I can come back and do that. And I didn't even know what to charge. I was like, well, if I'm making this much, maybe I'll just use what I'm getting on this contracted job for some of these side jobs. And then i kind of got smart at some point decided that maybe i should open like a small computer store uh near where i was living in 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 georgia at that time and so that would be kind of like the place where i would keep inventory like every time a thunderstorm would come by everyone's 56k modem was zapped it was just done no one had a protection on it those (laughs) things were only like 15 dollars i knew when the weather hit 20 of those things are sold and then you would people just call you Hey, you know, my internet's down or something's not working. And I would just have 56K modems in the car and be like, I got you. I already know what's wrong. Trust me, I know what's wrong. Swap the modem, install the drivers, get them back online. And it was just easy money.
1: How much were you getting for that? 50 bucks? You're taking 50, bucks for that? What were you making?
0: Yeah, I used to charge like $55 for service calls. And I remember I got one really big job. And this job was like, I don't know, 10000 bucks because we had to run Cat5 Cable inside of a building. They wanted us to buy the servers for them. So when I opened that computer store, I also got a contract or got the ability to buy from wholesale.
1: Wait, wait, what year is this when you actually decide you're going to pay rent and take space? Because that's a big step. 2001.
0: Yeah, this is like two thousand one. Did you do
1: that? Did you do that with your buddies, or this is you sole proprietor?
0: Just me. I kind of, I kind of figured. I went to like, I remember the leasing office was like in the trailer park in Jonesboro, Georgia, and this family kind of owned a lot of the strip plazas. And I just went in there, and I think they looked at me as like, as long as you can got your first month signed here, and I got the keys to this strip mall. And actually, I saw it on Google Maps not too long ago. And I, yeah, I just said, hey, I can put some racks in here got someone to build me a counter and i was just building like you know pcs for people who walked in but it was also the hub where i could do service calls so there were at least two people from the contracting job that i would say hey if you do contract work for me i'll pay you in addition to
1: that's amazing like would you have like 800 square feet a thousand square feet of space at that point like that's that's yeah i don't even know if it was
0: that big man it might have been that. 600 square feet because I didn't scary. need much, right? Like the yeah. motherboards and stuff, you can kind of keep behind the counter. And at that point, I'm not trying to keep too much in stock. You kind of get to know how many people are going to come with like a fry power supply or, you know, virus cleanup, you know, people clicking on stuff they shouldn't be clicking on. And you would just go and wipe and clean things up.
1: But that made you legit. I mean, you're now a legit business owner, you, you have a storefront. People are finding you from word of mouth, I imagine, right? You're not necessarily advertising. Are you doing any advertising? Is it all word of mouth?
0: Yeah, I took a club approach, right? So, you know, around this time, you know, like the club scene in Atlanta was super hot. And so I remember like, yo, I'll just print flyers too, right? Because I still had some friends that were on service calls. And whenever I would go out to a service call, we just had flyers in the car. And one of my best friends at the time, Daryl Brown, uh, he was actually the person who trained me at Bell South. So when I jumped out to kind of start my own business, I was like, dude, we can make way more money doing this. And I remember he would pass out the flyers. And I remember he even got like the company logo on the side of his van, like just got some vinyl and put it there. So every time he drove around, people would see the services that we did. So, you know, I made sure that the pricing was up to date, made sure we kept the work coming in and, Yeah, it it was a thing where, yeah, I think I didn't feel like it was legit because you got to remember, as much as I wanted to go get one of those jobs that you see posted, if you looked at the qualifications, didn't have a college degree, I didn't have any of the worded experience. So I was like, it's just easier to start my own business and just do all of those things because no one's going to be checking for credentials.
1: Right. They just need the work done. And if you can do it, you're worth the... How long did you... How long did you have this business? That
0: business ran for at least three or four years because that computer store became like, it's almost like cheers. People would come after work. Seriously, like people, friends I knew, people from the neighborhood, adults, people I went to school with, they would just come hang out. And this is a right around the time when the music industry was transitioning from analog gear, like those mi- mixing boards to digital stuff like Pro Tools. And so I would always keep a nice pro tool set up in the store. So you can look through the glass and see like the work console, the digital sliders, you know, two monitors and a Mac. And I remember people would come in because of word of mouth. They're like, Hey, I heard you do pro tools. And so I would just rotate that setup. You know, someone would want to buy it. And then wow. once we closed the store, we would go set it up, you know, you know, show them how to use it, get everything installed, try to wire up their outboard gear that was compatible with pro tools. And so for years, it became this place where, you know, I got this kind of mini studio in and some people would come and record, even though that wasn't the core business, but it's like, I just wanted to make sure I had the skills. So I learned how to do a little bit of mixing, a little bit of engineering, so I could actually move these things and go set them up myself. But also people would come from the neighborhood like, hey, you know, my computer's broken and USA wants $200. I'm like, yo, $75, we'll get you taken care of today. So, yeah, it became this thing where I could hire a few of my friends here and there. And I uh, just it's like a service that was missing from the neighborhood.
1: So so then what happens And like, I guess we're talking 2004, 2005, what what causes you to close the store? It sounds like you've got this beautiful business and community oriented and and you're thriving. Right. And you already know how to stay ahead of the tech because you've been doing that already. For a long time so what what happens around i guess 2005 that causes you to close the store
0: so what's weird in parallel one of my friends from high school ronnie jordan he was a comedian up and coming comedian and he walks in the store one day he was like hey you know you're like the most business-minded person i know and i need a manager and i remember going out so in atlanta at the time and atlanta's probably still kind of divided this way there's like the predominantly like black part And then there's like more of the white part. And so I remember like, maybe I could manage you, but are you funny? I don't even know. We went to school together, but I don't remember (laughs) you being like that funny. And so he was like, yeah, I'm funny. So I said, okay. So I drove him to the first stop. And this is a place called Uptown Comedy Corner. Now, this is a place where if you're not funny, people will tell you to kill yourself on stage. You got 30 (laughs) seconds. If you this can't is like the Apollo in second, New
1: York, right? In the Apollo. Yeah, yeah, it's like the Apollo. Yeah, yeah, okay.
0: You're out of there. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, he killed it. I mean, he he's doing a great job. I'm like, okay, wow. Now, here's the thing. We're about to drive 40 miles north to the white part of town. I know for a fact you can't do those jokes. Not with those words. That's not going to work. I, I'm sitting here like, how is this going to turn out? So we drive there. He gets on stage, and he just... What we call code switching. Same kind of jokes, same themes, but with words and phrases that would resonate with him. Hey, he did a good job. I was like, "Yeah, I could be your manager, but we're gonna have to figure out how to make more than twenty-five dollars because ten percent of twenty-five—that's—that's that's no money uh, for you nor for for me. So we figured out a couple of things. But in parallel, he was growing his comedic career. The price was going up. My percentage was doing well. We were making comedy CDs, you know, shelling t-shirts. And then we we stumbled upon this amazing opportunity with Latham Entertainment. So this is the same guy behind like the Kings of Comedy, Queens of Comedy, and he helped produce some other movies at that time. And so he had a reality show where they were going to look for the next king of comedy. And the king of comedy at the time was like Steve Harvey, Bernie Max, Cedric the Entertainer. These are like the biggest names in comedy. And so I remember we were plotting it out. And Walter Latham wanted everyone to wear a suit. He wasn't taking this t-shirt and jeans business. And so when we're going on the road, we only had money for a couple of suits. So we went to Men's Warehouse. I said, hey, all you have to do is be funny for two out of 16 cities and we make all our money back. I think they were getting like, I don't know, a 1,000 or 2,000 per show. So we went to men's warehouse and he's a big guy. And so I was like, look, we'll get you two suits. You wear these two, you're funny twice. We get all our money back and a profit. This will work out. And so I think they're like 90%, 80% done. And I would talk to him every night on the phone about which jokes to do and which order. And we would brainstorm and every time he won he will call and say hey i didn't get eliminated tonight we're on to the next city and i was like oh my god okay we've we've, we've exceeded plan like we're, we're way ahead of schedule here like no matter what happens from this point on you did it and one of the stops was atlanta so i got to actually see him perform and i was so proud of him because he did a good job and that was his home city so he was not going to get voted off there and part of our strategy is like if you just make it back to atlanta we've made all of this money along the way, we're set. And then we can actually go and do other stuff. To wrap things up, I remember the final event was in Madison Square Garden. And he called me, he's like, Kelsey, I didn't get eliminated, I'm going to the final. And the cash prize was (laughs) $35,000. And you would get to go on the tour with the Kings of Comedy and Earth, Wind & Fire and the Isley Brothers. They had like this combination tour, if you won. And you would be getting paid for each of those. So I'm sitting here doing the math. Like we would be set for like a couple of years and I'm still have the computer business going. So he calls me and one of my friends works at Delta. And I was like, dude, I got front row seats. If you give me a buddy pass to to, to New York tonight, <laughs> we got to go ASAP. And we got there and he won. Wow. We're on stage and he won. Wow. He brought this $35,000 check and he came in first place and it was a reality show so they were going to edit it and then maybe sell it to HBO or Showtime and we got our tour dates and i remember like when we went home we just had this new strategy about like how to mature his career and so long story short in parallel i kind of felt that i could i didn't want to scale the computer business i didn't want to try to figure out multiple locations because service calls are hard people aren't home sometimes you walk into some houses that you're like i don't know if i want to walk into this house so it's not all glorious running your own business because everyone gets paid before you do that's one thing people forget as a small business owner is that you don't get paid first you get paid last and so if you fall short that comes out of your pocket because no one can know that you ain't got it and so eventually you know when i get married i say you know i want to do something different And so the comedian thing was on autopilot. I ended up becoming also the IT department for Latham Entertainment, like helping them build one of their first websites, incorporating video into those sites and logins for like ticket sales and so forth. And so I'm learning all these new skills, but I learned that I didn't need to make 500 service calls a year. I can actually just work for one company, make the same income and take vacations. And so I went out to go get contract jobs like at Believe it or not, my first contract job was at Google as a system administrator out of Atlanta. And so that was the winding down of the computer store.
1: So let me let me I'm gonna pull you back for a little bit. Did you choose to manage this? Uh, what's his name? Tell me his name again.
0: Ronnie Jordan.
1: Ronnie. Did you choose to, to manage Ronnie as a form of just... Diversifying, or just because you thought it would be fun? Like, I'm trying to, it's so left field from what you're doing. I I just trying to get an idea if this was a trying to diversify. Are you just trying to, like, what is it? What made you decide to do that? Number one, as a friend. Number two,
0: I'm successful at this point. You know what I mean? Like, I'm running my computer store. It seems like anything I want to do, I can do it. And this person came and just had trust. And so I was like, Well, let me see what I'm getting myself into. And let's see if I can be helpful. And honestly, you don't actually know how long it's going to last. So you're like, Look, I'm single. I don't have any kids. I got this computer thing going. I'm doing these studios. So I'm meeting lots of famous people. I'm not going to name drop a bunch of people here. But this is when Atlanta starting to rise in the music scene. So I'm already kind of playing this duality already. I'm like the, the computer guy. So when you go to these music studios. It's like, Oh, call. Kelsey, he got you. Like whatever you're trying to do. So I'm kind of already in this entertainment world by nature of being in this tech business. So when he walks into the door, it's kind of like, sure, why not? So it was less about it's more about helping a friend and then also giving myself a challenge that I figured, if I can run a business, how hard could it be to manage a comedian?
1: But the bigger contract you get with um that management company, right? So that's I mean, that's pretty good because now you're not worrying about 50 different people. You're worrying about one, which is good and bad because that company decides they don't watch anymore tomorrow. You got no revenue. Like that's the only side, the, the only problem with like at Arden, we've always, we never said no to anybody because we always wanted to make sure that our, there wasn't one pot of revenue that was so large that if we lost it, it would be game over, Right.
0: Yeah, I think when you're employing a bunch of people, you need to definitely keep that in mind. But you you remember, I didn't have tens of people, you know, I had like two or three, and it was all kind of contract based. And most people probably felt it wasn't going to be like a forever thing. It was good for right then kind of thing. And I actually saved really diligently. I actually had a nice set of income coming from all directions. I got really smart with some of my bigger clients, the people who own like 30 insurance locations. I had them on monthly retainers. Right? So I was going to get $1,000 a month just for them to be able to call me. So you kind of keep those kind of close. And so now you got this revenue coming in. you got money coming from the comedian side. These studios will call every once in a while. And Studio Paid was really nice because they needed it now. Drop what you're doing, come now. Just tell me whatever it's going to cost, and we got you. And then you got these kind of consistent businesses. So you look at it, you have this consistent stream of revenue. You have good savings. So now you can actually start to think a little bit and say, What do I actually want to do? And even then, when you run the numbers, what people got paid in tech to just go in for eight hours, manage nobody, invoices, nothing, just go in and do your job and be out. I was like, you know (laughs) what, I can just pivot to that. And then I will have more room to think about the management stuff. Or I can always do this other stuff on the side and then kind of remove some of those liabilities around you know, what if a service call goes bad, and maintaining insurance and all of that?
1: Were you thinking you're going to pick up more comedians after Ronnie's success, or does that it like Ronnie doesn't need you anymore? How do, I'm just kind of curious how that ends before we get to the Google certification, or the Google work?
0: Yeah, so I did get more comedians. I actually had maybe three or four at a time, and me and Ronnie were partners, so we would strategically figure out the next move, and he was very diligent. He got to his shows on time we would have a show in pittsburgh and if we had to be in new york the next night there was no plane around everything was always on time and he was really good about his writing process in a point where you can actually give him advice and he would incorporate it and we could just kind of work together so there was a lot of balance there but when you bring out other comedians people you don't know it's very different There were some comedians, and most of them are still doing pretty well today. Uh, One of them actually has a TV show that's coming out on Netflix. But the thing is, different people are in different places in their career. Like most comedians, a lot of the ones I was working with, they come from very challenging backgrounds, where comedy is not the number one thing on their mind. It's something that they do and happen to be good at, but they're not quite yet professionals. So they would cancel a show. Hey, I'm not going to that thing in New York. It's like, dude. The promoter has been like, you, you can't just pull out. and So now your reputation's on the line as a manager when your act doesn't show, right? It's not just about what they pay the act. It's about ticket sales and it's about their customers trusting that they can actually bring in people they say they were going to bring in. That was so challenging at some point that I said, I'm not trying to be the world's biggest management company. And so more than two or three at a time didn't make a lot of sense. So at... You know, I would take on some people and just knew that it would be a time boundary right around the time that they start missing shows that I could teach them as much as I could and then it just wasn't going to work out anymore. But Ronnie started doing so well, like with college tours, he stayed so consistent that it made sense for me to say, look, I like tech more than I like entertainment. I want to make sure I don't get distracted too much from this entertainment side of the world. And so I I was able to put all of my energy into Ronnie, but I knew too at some point that my tech career would be making more than he generated. And so at some point I said, hey, look, I want to make sure I teach you everything, right? How to think about contracts, how to think about business. And he was already pretty good at, you know, being a professional, but just showing him all the things I was thinking about in my process, he was able to take on his own career. And when we separated, we're still friends to the day, but he knew that I had to kind of, I had to step away to kind of follow my own, thing and and one thing that was amazing i remember he called me one day and he's mentoring new comedians because he still does it and one of the comedians started talking about this guy who is amazing at tech and also funny and ronnie's like who he's like his name is kelsey this guy's amazing and ronnie's like kelsey hi he's like yeah you should watch one of his keynotes it's like the combination of everything we do and the tech stuff And i remember ronnie watching one of them and I'm on point. My jokes are hidden. The tech is smooth. And he calls me. He's like, You wouldn't believe that there are comedians who watch your videos on YouTube. And it it, it came full circle. I learned a lot from him, and he learned a lot from me.
1: Wow, that's amazing. I wanna ask, but I, there's a lot I still wanna cover. We've, we, I, we've, got, we've got some time here, but where did your knowledge and experience of contracts and all the business stuff, is that? Would you say that's all coming from the work you were doing in high school at McDonald's, Subway, Pizza? Like, where did some of that ex- – because I've had to do that early on for the Arden business, and it's just because I had some experience with other businesses dealing with it. I wasn't a guru. At some point, I finally said to Ed, dude, we got to get a real lawyer here. But where do you, where did that experience come from that you had that Ronnie didn't?
0: Well, so here's the thing. It's – you know, the, the thing the difference between talent and management is that talent has to focus on producing content, being creative, and then it can free up them to just focus on that, because there's a lot of value and focus. And so for someone who wasn't on the stage, I could focus on the business aspects of comedy, go and do the research, what are other comedians being paid? What's a good set look like watching and studying the game? And it's just hard to do both. You can, because I think he does a good job now, but you gotta remember when I was coming out of high school, this is survival now. What do you actually do with your life? And so I remember if I'm gonna do these things, like I remember working for Bell South, you would see the contracts, they would make people sign, you know, something, 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 not responsible if your house burns down because we plugged in the wrong thing, whatever. So I think all small business owners start with copy and paste. I remember getting my business, you know, you got to go and get your business license. Like, how do you do that? And luckily, the internet was a thing when I was starting. So I would just like, cool, uh, how to get business license. And then you'll see these steps and you go through the steps and it works. And you're like, oh, I guess I have a business license now. And then you're just kind of making up things as you go, a lot of copying and pasting. And I remember one time I gave someone a contract and they looked at us like, no, we can't sign this. We can't, we need this, we need that, we need that. I was like, hey, make the changes that you wanna see. I'll look at them. And if they're not too bad, it's a deal. But then eventually you start to understand what these things mean, what net 90 means, right? I remember when I first started, I didn't know what net 90 meant, right? Normally you do a job, they give you money, yay. And then I run into this net 90 thing. I was like, yeah, whatever, net 90 is fine. I don't know what that is. And I was like, all right, I'm done Pay me. It's like, yeah, we'll pay you in 90 days. I'm like, what? The hell is that? No. No. So then I got smart in my contracts like this is pay immediately price and this is the net 90 price because you're not going to hold my cash and not pay for the right to do that. So I got a little bit wiser, but I think it's you just learn on the job.
1: Yeah. It's, it's an amazing what you're saying because I did the same thing earlier on with Arden. I would ask the clients to give us the contract and then I would steal eventually after a couple of years. I had a contract I liked from kind of picking cherry-picking all the things I saw and the big word for me was always work for hire I had a a lawyer tell me that that was you never wanted to see those three words in a contract work for hire because it almost meant that everything you did they owned right and so like I that was it like you you end up with five things that you're first scanning a contract for just to make sure they're not in there so yeah yeah I I think okay so that's brilliant and you're right the moment I, I hired a sales guy and I hired some more administration and it freed me up to do content, I think my content got better too. So I think you're, yeah, okay. There's a lot of parallels with what you're doing there with I think business in general, so I love that. Before I sidetracked you back in time, you had said that you started contracting with Google. What, how did you do that? Don't you have to pass exams and do all that kind of stuff? to, to? And what kind of contract work were you doing for Google? What year are we anyway? We're like 2005? Yes, we're like 2005
0: at this point, maybe 2006, not sure. But I remember in Atlanta, it was very popular to do three months to perm. So there were all these contracting firms, especially for a place, people like Google, right, where you're headquartered in, you know, California, and you're trying to hire across the nation. It's hard to really have effective recruiting because you don't know anything about where the talent is coming from. And so ideally you just go through a recruiting firm. And one way to reduce risk would be three months to perm. And so for me, it's like, all right, now you still have to go through the interview process and maybe it was slightly modified. But I remember getting that job and I was working in the Google data center as a system administrator is what they called it. But we would work out in the data centers and we would automate provisioning of switches and pixie booting, racking, stacking servers. And that was like my first experience of being in like a, a data center. And it will spoil me because most data centers in the world will never look like that. So I learned a lot about power audits and just like what it takes to run a data center and combine that with all the knowledge that I had about just how people thought about using computing systems in general, but seeing kind of the inside. So it was one of my goals to be able to go and work for a company like Google, didn't really care what the position or the title was. I just wanted to earn my way in. So I did that for a long time, for a couple of years, maybe three, I just did three months to perm, learned everything I could, and it's like, promote it. Who cares? I can just switch jobs and just make more money. I didn't necessarily need to be in one place for four or five years, so I thought.
1: Were you doing B2B or 1099? Because if you're doing 1099, did you close down the other business when you started doing this, or were you running revenue through it?
0: Yeah, so basically you're W-2, and typically you're either a getting paid by the company that contracted out. But normally what most companies like Google did was they would bring in the candidates and they would pay you typically W2 style. And that was it just to make sure that there was no confusion on who was dictating, who did what. So they probably got a finder fee and was really clear about when they could like decide not to move forward or whatever. And typically, what I was doing, you know, when I was working at the various kind of three months to perm, I would always kind of keep my steady work, the the one that was like, hey, could you come next week or something to install this new set of machines or something? Like that was always kind of like my moonlighting on the side. Managing Ronnie was not too much work. That was kind of on autopilot. So I kind of kept those two revenue streams going. And so it just gave me a lot of flexibility. I was as I was kind of moving between the exploratory will of the tech industry, if you will.
1: But when you say, so every three months, instead of going perm, you would you would take a different contract, and this company would allow you to do that? They probably loved you for
0: it. Oh, they were all different companies. That's the, the beauty of it was, at that point, you would just see these job advertisements like paying X per hour or paying X per year, and that would translate to three months to perm. So you would look and you're just like, wait, I'm making 35 and they're paying 50? let me just go see and then you would get the job for 50 and then you know you're learning so then once i got the job i was all in i mean i was relentless those first couple of months i want to learn everything there is to learn then eventually you look around and say okay this was cool oh you're paying 65 (laughs) i'm out of here right because if you looked at the promotion process you get promoted you get like a 10 percent raise what no yeah you're locked right so I would just go to the next space. So I did that for a while. And my wife, every time I would come home, she's like, Did you quit? What were we doing? I, said, hey, you know how this works. I found a new gig, I'm making more money. And so she really understood that jumping around was the fastest way to increase my my income than trying to work in one place forever.
1: And the market was I guess still fairly stable for what you were doing. Like you didn't worry you weren't gonna have another job. And you weren't doing that without lining up the next one anyway, I imagine.
0: Yeah, I always had the next one. I would always interview, get the job, and then be like, yo, I'm out.
1: So you're doing that then up until about maybe 2008, and you're really learning at that point, uh, even at Google scale, how these data centers um, function. And I imagine a lot of the work you're doing is more hardware sorts of integration or software. Well, I remember
0: during that time, I worked in Google for three months. I went to a voice over IP company, and I probably stayed there a little longer, maybe like six months. And I learned how to flash phones, to put voice over IP software on them. Uh, Asterix was the server we were hosting. I left to do a bunch and started running the team that was kind of responsible for support. But support meant provisioning the the the, the phones to make sure they worked on RPBX, uh, logging into the various servers if they ever had problems, giving feedback on the software. And so every couple of months, I was switching almost even to a new vertical. I worked at an ISP where we were doing knock work, we were monitoring things overnight. Uh, I went to work in uh, web hosting and I was there for almost a year. And this is a derivative of Server Beach, which came out of Rackspace and was also hosting YouTube. So I learned about the whole web hosting world, MySQL, Plus, email, DNS. So every job I'm learning like a whole new area of tech that I was just getting to see everything.
1: And you were learning how painful it was. To provision all this stuff and all the different internal tools everybody had and all the problems. Like you must have seen the same sort of problems all being solved in different ways at that point over those three years.
0: Yeah, like Google had amazing automation tools and Pixie booting and whole teams that could forklift thousands of servers, swap them out and, and just refresh a whole fleet in a matter of weeks or days. And then you go to maybe some of the smaller shops and you know they don't quite have the patterns. They don't quite have enough people thinking about how to solve things outside of the box. Most people were just buying off the shelf software and trying to tune and configure it. And then you get like the web hosting where you're trying to give those capabilities to people that don't even know what a server is. So you really learn the full spectrum. I've done some tech support in between where you're answering the call and trying to solve someone's MySQL issue that doesn't even know MySQL is actually the backend for their particular website. It takes a ton of patience and the ability to articulate what they're going through and what needs to happen next.
1: Learning the right words to use is half the battle sometimes. So now what happens around 2008, you're, you're, you must get an opportunity where you finally say, okay, I'm gonna, st- I'm gonna stabilize for a few years. Is that what happens? Something really magical presents itself?
0: Yeah, like a child. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you have a kid and you start thinking, what does stability look like, right? So one of those contract jobs was nice because when my daughter was born, I took the night shift, right? So that uh, when my wife went to work, I could be there in the morning, you know, to be with my daughter. And we tried to have this kind of around the clock thing. And it was tough for a little while, but eventually when I didn't need to do that, I said, what does stability look like? And I remember... I applied for one of those jobs where you got to like put on a, a a collar shirt every day. It's financial services. And I remember going into like this fancy, you know, Alpharetta's like way north and in, in, outside of Atlanta. And I remember going in, it was very corporate, marble floors, the big, pretty building, the receptionist, the whole nine. And everyone was kind of dressed up. And I'm sitting here like, I don't know, am I out of place? And at that time, I always thought that's why people get their master's in CS and PhDs in CS so you can work in a building like that. Because I didn't understand what the skill difference yet was between someone that did go to college route and those who didn't. And so I get in there, I'm a bit intimidated because I'm thinking like, okay, this is where all the CS students go. And I remember I was, they were asking me these questions and boy, I was on point. I was like, oh, that's easy, that's easy, that's easy. You, or you could do it this way. And I remember I knew I did a good job. But I didn't know if that was just because of the job I was applying for, they weren't really giving me the hard questions. And so I remember driving home and the recruiter called, and this is a full-time job. And the recruiter was like, hey, they're gonna basically double your salary. I'm like, double? (laughs) I went back and and I did this interview on my lunch break at the previous company. So I get back to work, I was like two week notice. I'm out, I gotta go and uh one of my best friends was my manager at that time joe rodriguez and i called him i was like yo bro they're doubling my salary and i remember him asking probably jokingly are they hiring (laughs) (laughs) and so i'm at this financial institution and i really learned honestly i learned a lot of other things but I also learned how good i was not to be boastful but sometimes you don't really know that you got it until you see what you can do in new environments. And I was just creative. I had that small business owner mind, this entrepreneurial spirit. I can do anything as long as I understand what needs to be done. I had acquired skills by switching jobs every three months. So it was no problem when new requirements came because I was like, yeah, we can do this. We can take this approach or this approach, which one you wanna do. And I always had this way of getting things done within a month or two months, right? Being able to scope things down in a way that you can execute on and then take the next piece. And so the first three months at that job, I was on fire because I had that mentality that I need to ramp because it's only gonna be three months and then three months turns into three years. And that was around the time that instead of switching jobs, I started doing things like learning how to speak at meetups. I started contributing to Python because that was the language we were using at the time. So I was contributing to disutils. I got into like the open source world. And I found that fulfilling because now I was able to grow in one company. And then I also learned how to grow in terms of organization politics. You knew you were right. You knew you had the solution, but you didn't have the rank. And someone could just say no. And then the job became getting them to understand, getting consensus, and getting them to say yes, and being patient enough for them to get there.
1: I try to tell a lot of engineers, I mean, the the engineering skill is important, but you've got to understand the business. You've got to understand the pressures that your boss and your boss's bosses are under, and you have to be empathetic to them. You can't just say no all the time, right? You, You have to meet people halfway in order to get what you want, and that's an entirely different skill. And until either you manage or, like you, you've been managing for a long time. I like I wish we as an industry could figure out how to teach that to engineers because I think that's that's what's missing sometimes especially when engineers are really pushing back on a technical issue slow down slow down but I mean you you your entire career was was built on that premise right and they loved every minute of it. They, they they saw how productive you were getting getting stuff done
0: I think I was able to be productive in spite of the support You know, I went back to that company. I remember six or seven days, seven years later, I was kind of deep in the Kubernetes space at the time. And I remember I was coming back because, you know, I had made a name for myself, you know, and I remember presenting this container movement to that organization. And I remember my boss, seven years prior, he, he pulled me to the side. He was like, I'm proud of you, but I do realize that I was not very supportive when you were here. I remember how difficult I made it for you and your team to really move forward and I just want to apologize for that. And you know, that moment kind of let me know that it wasn't easy. It wasn't like just because you're doing the right things people will support you. And again, I had empathy because of course, you know, previous people had come and gone and never finished the job or who maintains things once they go to production? If you disrupt the old way of doing things, who who is the steward of the new way? Um, so I, I never held a grudge, but it was definitely satisfying to have him acknowledge that it could have been smoother. It could have been easier. and But honestly, I'm glad it wasn't because I've learned so much about corporate politics and all the speed bumps uh, that are in front of people that are trying to get these things done. So this is why when I teach about technology, I never say things like, all you got to do is because I already know that that person who's raising their hand and trying to step up, that they're probably facing the same speed bumps I was, and it has very little to do about the right solution or the technology. There's probably some human and people things going on.
1: And I love that story because you have to learn to be a manager too. The first time I, I was asked to manage something, like somebody wanted to quit in a week. I mean, I had to learn and I had people, yeah, I had people who were patient with me to teach me, right? Like, I mean, that won't happen now. I've been doing it for a long time. So I feel like when I hear that story, you, that was somebody who had to learn and appreciate and understand, and that's beautiful, right? Like, it, it, they're at a point now where they realize they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that anymore. And I say that. You, if you're getting into management, it's really good to make sure you have people around you that are going to be patient with you as much as you got to be patient with those they're managing. So how long are you in that, financial company. You said you're there for like three years, which puts you at about what now, 2011?
0: Yeah, 2011, maybe 2012. I'm really doing well now and I'm bringing people with me. I move upstairs with the engineering team. I teach myself Java so I can actually contribute at the app level. And I wanted to just do more than just ops. So I was like, look, programming is a set of skills that I knew I needed, learned a little bit, at the previous job, but I was like, I wanna get in whatever language we are using, I don't care, I'm gonna learn that one so I can contribute at all the levels. And I remember Puppet had just kind of came out and I'm working at an institution that's like, we're not using, this thing ain't even 1.0 yet. What are you talking about using it to manage services and production? And so I remember all the bugs I would encounter, I would try to fix them in the open source and then bring them back in house. And I think I got told no for like, I don't know, six months to a year that I couldn't use Puppet in production, but boy, it was taken off in QA and dev. I was able to spit out environments, and I'd done a lot of automation, even integrating with our ticketing system, so anyone can just you know drive the automation through dropdowns in JIRA. And so this Puppet thing became part of our DNA, at least at that time. And I remember uh, that same manager that apologized later. He was a good guy, though. I mean, he wasn't all bad. I remember him getting James Turnbull and he had wrote the puppet book. And I remember I bought that book to really learn my puppet skills. And so he brought James in because, you know, he didn't know how good we were with puppets. He's like, look, I'm going to bring in the expert. I met James Turnbull. And he was like, oh, the guy that wrote the puppet book. So we were like, wow, all right. So I remember my boss was like, you know, we got James coming in. You know what I mean? Like name dropping a little bit. And I remember James, my manager and my team, we get in the elevator. And I know James may may or may not know me because at this point, I am contributing to the open source community. I'm already got my name in there. I'm committing code. But my boss didn't know too much about what we're doing because I have to do that work at home. No open source yet uh, at work. And so we get into the elevator and then James is like, or my boss is like, hey, James, uh, this is Kelsey. And he started introducing us. Like, oh, I know Kelsey. We love what Kelsey's doing. All those open source <laughs> commits. And my boss is like, what the hell? How do you know James? I'm looking at him like, I don't think you know who you got. (laughs) So we go upstairs, we get to the top floor, we go into one of the fancy media rooms, you know, all the glass is circling and there's a big monitor. And then my boss is like, hey, how about you guys show James how we're using Puppet and he can give us some pointers and feedback on how we can do it better. I was like, sure, why not? So I was like, all right, James, let me show you. So the way all people start is through Jira. you open a ticket, uh, our RPMs are automatically signed. If you want to sign an RPM, you open this type of ticket and your GPG is already in the background and I'm doing all of this automation. I am like, you can deploy anywhere you want behind the scenes. Bamboo is driving the puppet deployments, taking the reports and attaching them to everything. So James is like, I have nothing to say other than, oh my God, this is like super advanced next level like the level of integration, the way you all are doing things is like, you're at the top of your game. And then I remember um, getting the invitation to speak at Puppet Conf. And so my boss is like, you know, I even drove James to the airport, because they're gonna try to put him in a cab. I was like, nah, we ain't gonna let James Turnbull take a cab to the airport. I'll drive you. So I'm having a conversation with him, getting to know him. And uh, I remember he told me something like, my boss was like, hey, don't be stealing my people. <laughs> so I dropped him off at the airport. And a couple months later, I get this invitation to speak at Puppet Conf in Portland, Oregon. So I go, and this is my first like real conference talk. Everything else had been local meetups. And I didn't know how I was supposed to present. And I remember putting a, little, a few jokes in there. And that was my first like live demo. I just didn't know how it was supposed to go. So I just wanted to just to be stellar. And I remember I'm on that keynote stage, it's a single track conference. And I remember all the people that I saw from Puppet Labs, the people, cause I got to visit the office while I was in town. And I remember some of these people from the open source commits, but I'd never seen their faces before. So they're all in the front row and Puppet is booming. This, this little auditorium theater is full and I'm rocking, I'm feeling good on stage and I'm just watching everybody, including the founder of Puppet, Luke Knies in the audience. They're just watching. And little did i know that was my interview i was essentially interviewing they knew i had the coding skills because i'd already did my commits and they were just watching how i was kind of talking about this very new feature in puppet that was obscure and most people didn't know how to extend puppet using this low level uh, extension point and my whole talk was about it and it made people laugh it made people understand why it was there and then how to actually use it and then i remember having a meeting with Luke Knies before going back to the airport. We we're at the Lovejoy Bakery. And he would just tell me about what the role could be, how it was going to be very different than working corporate, the open source interactions. And I remember getting back to work and my boss had gave me a raise, All right? It's like, I'm back to work and he called me into the office. And I really love this about working at the company's Total Systems. They did a good job by their people. This is a place where people work for 20 years and 30 years kind of deal. And so I came into the office, you know, you don't know if you're in trouble. You don't know if you're like, you, what'd I do? Come on, I didn't do anything, I was gone. And he came in and I remember he handed me this, like you're getting a like a, a little bonus and a raise. And he shook my hand and I just felt like, wow, like, okay, you see the work we're doing because this is out of the blue. This is not during the normal promotion period. And uh, I told him though, I appreciate this, but I'm quitting to go work for Puppet Labs. And he was not disappointed. He just said something like, I'm surprised it took this long. And I went to go work for Puppet Labs. So that job really matured me in so many ways of learning how to navigate a complex organization, financial services, regulations. By the time I left that place, there was no more of this. You can only wear jeans on Friday. We were allowed to use Macs instead of the corporate issue windows boxes. And we learned how to embrace new technology, not out of fear, but I like strategically thinking about making ourselves and our team better. And so I was able to leave a permanent culture change that exists today. Cause I keep in touch with them.
1: Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And he must've known he was just trying to save you proactively, but at that point you were. And it was the right time for you to move too. How did you like working at Puppet? And how long were you there for? Cause you're starting there now, what, 2011, 2012?
0: Yeah, I was at Puppet for almost two years. And so I was working remote and, you know, at some point they asked me to lead an engineering team. And so we're writing code. I'm doing some work around integrating the Puppet module system into Puppet core itself. So you didn't have to download two tools and we had to build our own package management. We had to build our own dependency graph and I'm stretching myself technically as well, but I have some good people on the team. And so I really leveled up in like core software engineering. Like I had always been good at like making changes to open source projects, but taking on new challenges and all that CS stuff that I didn't get, I was in a crash course now. I had to learn about graph theory. I had to learn about all of these things and these algorithms that I missed out on But luckily, I had some people who were fairly helpful that would teach me these things. I would go ramp up and then be able to help with the implementations. And so a little bit of success there. One thing I enjoyed the most was our customers were also the community. So there was this like blurry line between someone using the software for free and someone using the software under their enterprise, giving us a paycheck. And I could just work in the open now for the first time. All of my work was in the open. I can either do something on GitHub or the public change tracker. There was no difference between external and internal. So now I could actually blend those two parts of my life. And speaking was part of the job. When we would have a public con or there was a DevOps days, as an engineer, it was cool for you to go speak at a conference and not have it count against you or have something you do in your free time. So I learned, to learn, I learned a lot about what it's like learning in public. And what it's like working with people you've never met before in real time, and that's where I really uh, solidified those skills.
1: And then I guess in fourteen, you a new opportunity comes along. Is that CoreOS? What what comes after Puppet?
0: So here's a weird thing. I'm at Puppet Labs, and I'm 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 killing it. I'm doing I'm I'm. This is the first time I jump on social media. I remember someone said you need a Twitter account. So I don't, I don't do Twitter. That's not me. <laughs> And someone's like, no, you should open one because, you know, as we go out to these particular events or you're working on something, it'd be good to interact with folks. So I opened my Twitter account and learned how to really engage in terms of like social media. And I remember learning about containers while I was at Puppet and Go comes out too when I was at Puppet. And I wanted to rewrite parts of Puppet or, you know, things like Factor and there's other parts of Puppet that could benefit from a statically compiled language faster than ruby and not have some of the problems we were seeing when we we're on largely a ruby based stack and so docker's out golang is out and i'm trying to introduce those technologies and they were like no you're not allowed to use those technologies and i'm sitting here i was like hey hold on we've been talking about helping other people embrace new technologies and even automate doing so but now we're faced with a new technology this container thing is disrupting configuration management. and It's almost like you couldn't even talk about it. The project that I did write in Go, it kind of got shot down. Well, Go doesn't run on AIX at the time. And I was like, wow, so we're not going to do nothing unless it supports something that even IBM don't want to support? This is crazy, and I felt that I was now being shut out of innovation because we kind of had not invented here syndrome a little bit. And so I just became like, this is not it for me. Puppet is not the center of the world. There's other things happening and I would like to be a part of it. So when I left Puppet, I went to go work for a company called Monsoon Commerce, a little small, I wouldn't say startup, but they were a small software company right here in Portland and they were looking for like a director, VP of engineering. And I remember when I joined, they were having all kind of outages. They had Ruby, they were trying Node.js, lots of Java. And I remember looking at the stack and like, this is a really good situation for Go like authentically. And they were looking at microservices and I got a chance to actually write some code. We flipped a lot of things from all those other languages into Go. I created Comp D there because we didn't need configuration management because I saw the light with containers. So I, I came up with Comp D, open sourced it. And that engineering org started having fun again. It was, it was like going back and with more clout and with more authority to bring fun back into the workplace. And we did that and made a lot of progress in a short amount of time. And that's when I spoke at GopherCon for the first time while I was working at Monsoon Commerce. And that was like maybe my third or fourth big conference, maybe my second to be honest, outside of the puppet events. And I remember sitting there with one of my coworkers from Monsoon Commerce, Billy Cleet. He's the guy that manages Vimgo now, so small world. And I'm watching you know, Rob Pike get introduced. I'm like, man, this, Brian Kettleson and and Eric ain't really, they're not really bringing the energy. So I remember after they did the first intro, I went to the back and I didn't know them very well at all at that time. I said, Hey, look, my name's Kelsey. Maybe I can try to be the MC for the event and let's just see how it goes. And they were like, sure, go ahead. So they mic me up and I'm, I'm scheduled to speak maybe third or fourth. And so I walk out and introduce myself to the Go audience. Hey, I'm Kelsey, just a guy in the community. And I just started having fun on stage. I'm super nervous. I've never emceeded an event before. And I remember I introduced myself. And when I introduced myself, I kind of felt like I had made it. And I came out and I remember doing this talk at GopherCon where I was using the Go Present tool and I found out that you can run commands from the Go Present tool. And I had already started digging into CoreOS because we were making that transition and I was going to be starting working there soon. And so I remember booting a VM, I, I wrote a Pixie server in go, and I was manage, running the API calls through the slide deck. And I was booting VMs from the slide deck. I remember Rob Pike and Robert Greason Moore and all those folks were in the front row, just like, that's freaking amazing. Whatever you're <laughs> doing right now, it was called go for sysadmins, I remember. And I was just showing all the stuff that you can do with the Go programming language, why it was better, and the live demos were just all on point. And then after that talk, I realized that I'm pretty good at this technical communication thing as well.
1: I was lucky enough to be there and I remember you jumping on stage and, and doing that. I mean, that was amazing. I didn't realize that you didn't have a lot of experience. I mean, you walked, you looked like a natural up there. I figured they they put you up there because this, you know, this is what you did.
0: <laughs> no, they took a chance on me, man, and and I really appreciate that they did that because that really kind of gave me a lot of authenticity in that in that Go community. And I met all these other people, like Derek Colson and all these folks. And I remember Derek was like, You just raised the bar from here on out. All presentations now must be at that level or better. And I don't know, I just kind of felt like I got that final piece of confidence from all these other people that I respected. You know, one thing that's also interesting? I remember we were in Denver at the same time RailsConf or one of the Ruby events was going on. Because I remember, I guess we were like having a good time and people were tweeting like how awesome the event was. And I remember people leaving the other event coming in. I think Matt, was his name? I forget his name. Matt Amanetti. Yeah, like he man, showed man, up, he was like, Katrina. what the hell's going on?
1: <laughs> I think Katrina showed up. Yeah, they're like, what the hell's
0: going on? We're seeing like, you guys having all this fun over here. So they literally left the other conference and they came to GopherCon, they were all posted on the back wall and it was just like, yo, and it was just amazing. I just fed off of that energy.
1: Go is the real first community I've really participated in. So I remember everybody saying, all these people are coming from Ruby. Like, what's going on? And I didn't know any of these names, but I, I knew everybody was excited about that. Yeah, I, I, that's amazing. Now, I think I heard you say at that point at GopherCon 14, you already were engaged with CoreOS, or you were going to – what's the story behind that? Because it sounds like you're doing some pretty good stuff at or Monsoon, right? So, so what makes this jump now into CoreOS?
0: I mean, when I just saw CoreOS, I mean, we're, I was evaluating it to bring it into monsoon commerce and I was just like, this is it. You know, you got this container optimized OS. It's very minimal. Actually, that was the reason why I had to write Comp D because I couldn't install Ruby easily on core OS. Like there was no Ruby interpreter running it from a container was kind of weird. I was like, if I just go with this go thing, I don't need any OS dependencies. I can just use Comp D to do the heavy lifting and I'm good. So it was like the perfect match for that. And so I was just looking at everything on their roadmap and what they were doing, this whole Docker thing. I just felt that they had this complete story. And I remember reaching out to like Alex Povey. He was like, oh, I'm not sure what you would do, but let's just figure it out. And so I joined and he was very transparent. It's like the first company I joined where he was teaching me about like how they raise capital. I remember one time they were getting a new funding. He was like, Should I click the, should I click the set? Should I click the set? And I learned a lot from Brandon Phillips and Alex Povey about like what it takes to build a startup, right? when I joined, I think they had about 10 people. Uh, They were in a very small, we used to call the forum out in San Francisco. And they just felt like family. Like they all had lots of skills. Everyone that worked on that team had amazing set of skills. Uh, People taught me a lot more about distributed systems. Uh, how containers work, how it interface with the kernel. I just learned so much at that job. So after meeting that team, I knew that's where I wanted to go next. And I really kind of took the career into like overdrive because every week we were all in this very exciting space. It felt like Puppet did 10 years prior. And every time we did something to etcd, we would always go to a meetup to show people the new changes. And I would live demos like, hey, we just did this thing to this container management tool we had called Fleet. We just did this to CoreOS, let me show it to you. We just did this to Etsy let me show it to you. Did you know Docker could do this? It seemed like so much was changing so fast that the world needed a translator. What was happening? Show me what was happening. What does that mean for me? So while working at CoreOS, I eventually became the product manager or a product owner, but I was really good at seeing where we needed to go, what everyone else was doing in, in the industry and taking all of that chaos and bowling it down to meetup talks and conference talks all at the same time so in real time moving the industry forward and then showing people how to think about it
1: i remember the buzz around coreos i mean i i literally remember everybody talking about it and this was going to be the next the next os everybody was going to be on and and i remember i think it was called rocket right you were trying to not to use docker's container i guess specification you were you were you were you had your own and i remember all the conversations around which one is going to win or lose or do you remember any of that when you were there and, and...
0: oh i remember all of that i mean <laughs> you got to so i mean i mean docker gets popular rightfully so right they built a tool that really resonated with developers and honestly developers were coming from a place where people were asking them to run things like virtualbox and vagrant spinning up a bunch of vms just to do effectively what docker was doing I think a lot of people don't understand that Docker really appealed to developers first because of that workflow improvement, much lighter weight, much closer to the problem set. And also, this is at the time where people were using things like Python and virtual Inf and PIP, Ruby had RVM. It was just really complicated to even package an application. So Docker also solved the build problem as well. Um, so you take all of that, so the developers are moving forward, but what, what for the operators? What do you do for the OS? And I remember Alex Povey had a really good vision around he wanted to secure the entire internet, you know, the big bowl, YC combinator statements. But he understood what it was going to take to get there. And one way you could do it was if you treated servers like Chromebooks, read-only operating systems, shrink it down, reduce the footprint, remove as many things that could potentially become security vulnerabilities, what would you be left with? And so they decided to add things like Docker, right? Let's you know take Docker and make that kind of the center of the OS and remove everything else. And the other thing they did was come out with etcd and they took the RAF protocol for building like distributed systems with consensus, but they needed a key value store for configuration. And so etcd was that thing that would take all of these kind of slimmed down nodes and give them a way to coordinate with each other. And the thing is Docker was a centerpiece and Docker was a good store for many, many years. But then something got weird because Docker wanted to move up market. Instead of just being this container runtime that was embedded in CoreOS or being used by the Mesos community, they wanted to also be the orchestrator. So they came out with Swarm. And something weird happened. This Lego block, this building block that everyone would base their container runtimes on started to do things like they bought a startup that was doing networking. And so then you had this default networking thing inside of Docker then they came up with Docker Swarm. And so lots of people felt that Docker was going in a direction that was incompatible with being this small building block. And so Rocket was a response to that. So this is many years of CoreOS being in pretty good shape, but then it's saying, hey, what we need from a container runtime is not in whole OS and container orchestration. We just need a clean building block and that building block wasn't complete. There was still work to do at that level, that people felt like the attention was being diverted somewhere else. So then Rocket was like, look, we need something that doesn't run as root. We need something that's lightweight. And so they decided to build a container runtime off of system D, the other convert controversial project at the time. Because system D was taking over the user land, right? Everything was being rolled into system D, everything. And then it gained container management capabilities similar to Docker. So then we looked at that and said, well, it's already in that direction. We might as well just layer a small bit of automation around it. And then you got rocket.
1: And to me, that makes sense. And honestly, and maybe we can have this conversation before we're done. I don't believe that even though I'm packaging things with Docker right now, that's what's actually being deployed somewhere, right? I mean, once I deploy something, who knows what's happening, right? It's, it's that it's all that magic. So personally, as a developer, I really don't care. What the tech is i just want my stuff to run right and i always felt like why can't the operating system have their own container run if they can take my docker container and make it run what do i really care at the end of the day
0: yeah and eight years later that is a fact was probably happening on i would probably say the majority of platforms that run containers are definitely not running docker right because docker is multiple things like you alluded to it's a container runtime It's more importantly, a packaging format that led to some open specifications. And those are the things that I think most people use today from that time period.
1: I think of it as a packaging, a a packaging system to be able to deliver something to the cloud and whatever happens after that happens. Do I use it to run on my local machine? Yeah. Do I love that my local machine isn't all messed up now with installations? Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I think it's a great developer tool. At the, what what I've never understood about docker honestly were all of the companies that were making more money on top of the tech like I always felt like docker couldn't find that revenue model and that always scared me a little bit to be honest with you and building a company on top of docker scared me because I know it's open source and all that but like if they disappeared overnight wh- what did that mean for your business that was so heavily dependent I I don't want to be making more money, I think, than the tech that I'm sitting on.
0: Well, I mean, that's very common with infrastructure, right? I'm pretty sure UPS makes more money than uh, the Department of Transportation in terms of profit margin. And so I think what people did was kind of delegate that part of the stack to Docker, because I think people knew once the pattern was clear, and most of us have seen the code base already, that if need be, anyone like Red Hat could take over and just make it free. You know, right so i think the really thing was docker's doing a good job of it they may charge people for registries or whatever and that's fair no one wanted to go in that territory and they were not dealing with orchestration which i think everyone else believed that's where the money was going to be so there wasn't really no big fight honestly at that layer until there started to get a little bit cloudy there so i think people knew what to do if docker were not to make it everyone kind of knew Like for example like if Golang, for example, Google didn't want to deal with it anymore. I think most people know that they could take that language if they wanted to see it continue. There's probably enough people outside of Google who can keep Go going forward. And I think that's the real thing that makes us confident in open source, not necessarily the one company behind it being around forever.
1: No, I think that's totally fair. I think if Google didn't want it, um, the people that are managing it now would still, I mean, look, Tailscale has their own fork and they're making I remember on twitter just last week somebody complaining to one of the devs at tailscale like why are you doing this and they was like because we can because we have the know-how and this is what we need and i actually yeah, and I have, have no, an
0: all-star team over there
1: yeah right like the guys that worked on it and, and i have no problem with what they're doing i mean they're not really forking it for to hurt the go ecosystem they're doing it because they need that support in their product so yeah i you know when, when i look back on it now i'm Obviously, right? I mean, nobody's going to let that tech die. It's become too important. I was shocked when I saw CoreOS, IBM buy, IBM, right? Red Hat bought CoreOS. I was shocked when I saw that. How did you feel when you realized that was going to be happening? Did you go work at Red Hat at that point or were you out already? I don't remember.
0: So I left already because when I was at CoreOS, I was traveling a lot before we were a Kubernetes company, you know, that wasn't an assured thing. So that became almost like a second job is contributing to Kubernetes evenings and then talking about it. And then eventually they became one and the same thing that Coral West kind of pivoted towards a Kubernetes company. But after about a year and a half, almost two years of that, I was like, what else do I wanna do? What's next after this? And I remember I went to go work with the NASA folks, JPL out in Pasadena. And they were just building up their Kubernetes. And I really enjoyed working with them. I think I spent like half a day on site with them, just talking about open source and Kubernetes and what they were building. And also they had a really good mission. Like they were trying to get humans to Mars, right? And these rovers were part of that. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll just go work at, at NASA, right? Like I wanted something that had a human motivation tied to it as well. And don't get me wrong, Coral was is a fantastic experience. It's like a big part of where I am today but I was like, maybe it's time to go back and just go work on some things and get to manage those teams. So I did, I interviewed at NASA and got the job to go run pretty much all the infrastructure over there in that lab and manage those teams. And I was preparing to move to Pasadena. We had it done, done deal. And then the Google folks were like, hey, give us an opportunity. And so I was like, nah, I'm going to NASA, that's it. (laughs) Um, You know, the right numbers show up and, you know, I'm convinced that the technology that I'm using comes from from Google. There was no stretch of my own kind of imagination that I need to figure out how to align with Google because from the community side and from the technology side, there was great alignment. And the only fear I had was being put in the box. I thought it was going to disappear. You know, you join a company to 100,000 plus employees, like, what am I going to do in that? Uh, and none of that stuff happened. I didn't get closed off in the box. I learned so many more things. I had a bigger industry impact. The stage was bigger. The challenges were bigger. And so I also got to grow. And so I've been there for six
1: years. Yeah, I when I have, I've had friends from the time, I, I say about 2013 till now who joined Google. Always, and then we go to a conference and I'm always looking at them like, you know, Google just walked in the room, right? And they look at me like, no, and I'm like, no, you don't understand. Google just walked in this room, especially if it's a Google technology like Go or something. I mean, that's a huge adjustment that you have to, you have to, the, the only other way I can describe it is when I joined a fraternity in university, and somebody said to me that in many situations now, it build did walk in the room. Sigma Pi just walked in the room. And so you're reflecting on sigma pi right now if you do something dumb everybody's going to say sigma pi did something dumb and i've had to tell some of my friends i go google just walked in the room and everybody's listening so just be aware of that right and so you kind of can lose your identity i think when you join these big companies like a google if you at a google tech or if you're at microsoft at a microsoft say conference
0: i think i think there's one thing that helped prevent that in my case number one Google was not and is not currently the number one cloud provider. So a lot of the work I was doing in Kubernetes is associated with Google Cloud. We were no, not number one. Even when it came to open source, Docker was number one. Swarm was, had a trajectory of being number one, and Mesos was kind of the industry standard for large-scale stuff. So there was a bit of a humbling you know, kind of a situation going on when, when Google did walk in the room, They had a lot to learn when they walked in the room. Why are people here to listen to Docker and not us? Why are people here talking about Mesos and not Kubernetes? Go at that point. Remember, people still saying Go is a toy language. It's only good for X, Y, Z. It's never going to make it. Java has a bigger ecosystem, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think there was a lot of things at that time, at least the tech I was involved in, Google showing up people wanted to know us like, okay, we respect their technical prowess, but these tools aren't number one. They're they're up and comers. We like that Google's behind it, but they're not number one. And so I think there was this delicate balance where you could walk in the room and yes, people would listen to you, but there was something to learn
1: so i'm gonna we got I'm gonna take ten more minutes of your time here and i've got some I want to ask you these questions uh, because you're working at Google you're working on on, on cloud um, I meet people who want to get into some of the roles that you're doing right where you're you're on stage teaching you're out helping customers these types of things but I think what happens sometimes people who are taking these um, and you're doing much more than DevRel, so I, I don't want to put you in that box, because you're doing so much more than that, okay? But I meet sometimes people in these roles, and they don't understand that every employee has a responsibility at some level to either help generate revenue or reduce costs. But I don't, I don't like these ideas that I work at a company, and they're paying me, and I just have to show up every day. No, either your job is to generate revenue, or it's to save costs to help grow revenue in that direction, right? And so, is your role to help grow cloud, right? Because there's three big clouds out there, right? Everybody says Microsoft is the biggest cloud because they they, they have the John Deere's of the world running there, right? And then maybe Amazon, and then, I don't know what the numbers are, and then, then kind of Google, right? So, I have to imagine that you feel pressure all the time to try to help get Google to be number two or number one. Like, When you're preparing materials and you're out teaching and you're helping with engineering, I guess from the engineering side, they've already selected Google, but what has been your, has that been part of what you've had to do, help to grow cloud? And for those people who are looking at these roles, where their job is to help grow whatever that product is, can you kind of give insight in how you do that without looking like a salesperson? Because I point people to you, Kelsey, Kelsey sells without selling. You gotta watch him that that's, that's what he's doing. Maybe talk about that.
0: So you can remember how I entered my tech career. I'm an entrepreneur. The skills that I'm gaining are ones that I'm hoping people find valuable and if they find them valuable. They will pay for them because I gotta eat too, right? My whole tech career started with that lens. I learned technologies that I can use to offer value. And if I want to go to work, someone has to pay for that value. That's, that's been my entire career. So I'd never struggle with this concept of using these skills to provide value. And if you're providing value, especially to a business, then they should be willing and happy to pay. And so everything else is just me acquiring more skills to offer quote unquote, more value. Now, also when I go in my early career to your house because Lightning has taken out your 56K modem, you can't get online. You're happy to see me, right? You're like, wow, you're here. Yes, 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 fix my internet. And then I fix your internet. I actually solve your problem. You are happy to pay and I will get tips sometimes. Hey, I'll give you a double. I appreciate you coming on time. I'm back online, perfect. So I've always thought of the relationship between tech and people in that kind of framing. So now let's fast forward to Google. I moved out of developer relations a couple of years ago, or officially in times of the work I'm doing, I'm technically an executive at Google. I sponsor some accounts and those accounts I work with the C-suite. These are the people, the CIOs, the CTOs of the world, and there's a lot of strategy in their cloud adoption because they're about to put real money into these platforms that need to be around for a while. So they need to gain confidence and they're making real business decisions. And these are real businesses that you use their products and services. And then there are people who have to use that platform. So that's the one thing that I did enjoy about being in the advocacy role. I can't go tell someone to use something that doesn't work for them. That's not advocacy when you try that, that's evangelism. Advocacy is understanding with empathy that they can't use this in this form. We're gonna have to change it and the roadmap should be changed in order to work well with them and so my approach to the community right so when i think about community this is everybody paying customers and non-paying customers but the only difference between community and customer is that one group will pay you that's it that's the biggest difference so i always treat them the same i always approach it all with authenticity i think kubernetes is good for this and i think no one should use kubernetes for this at all this is not a good spot for kubernetes Here's where Go is appropriate, here's where it's not. And I try to keep myself super educated on those things. But at the same time, I like where I work. I chose to work there for a reason. And so I have a sense of pride for the things I'm actually working on because I do believe they're in line with my ethics, my motivation, and the things I want to be working on. So when, when you see me ever talk about something I'm working on, there's gonna be a natural passion because I'm working on it because I want to. Not because they say, okay, so you got to work on this this quarter. And I go and debate and say, oh, man, I wish I could work on something else. So you don't get that kind of energy from me. And also, I've had a lot of the jobs where I know this pain intimately well. And so these solutions, I can always go back to my past and say, man, if I would have had these tools back then. Or when I'm meeting people who are working like I was back then and I get to show them these tools for the first time, I can't help. But get excited for them, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you see someone walking five miles to work, and you give them a car, that changes everything about their situation. That's my relationship with it. So, do I believe that you should be contributing to the bottom line? Exactly. Like, what are they paying you to do? Like, if you if you don't think that you're part of it, so here's the thing: if you don't care about how your company makes money, or you don't even know how your company makes money. You will probably still have a job, but just don't expect to make very much money. You'll do well because the market is hot, especially in tech, but you create a ceiling for yourself. You're in a situation where someone's gotta tell you what to do. Hey, we need you to do X, Y, Z, right? Because you're not gonna have any better ideas because you don't know what ideas make the most sense because you have no clue how they'll actually perform in the marketplace or if anyone should be working on them at all in any sustainable fashion. I think that's the big disconnect sometimes so when people see me on stage that's the last part of the work right like a musician writes a song they get the music they record the song they package it up and then they put it out and then they go do a concert when you see me on stage that's the concert that isn't the work that's the concert and so i think a lot of people don't understand that i do try to prioritize things that are sustainable meaning are there going to be people to work on it? Do those people need to be paid? Would a customer even want to pay for this? Does it add any value in the marketplace? So I've always, since my early days of starting my own business, to every company I've worked with, I always was curious, how do we make money? Are we doing it in a way that aligns with my own values? And is this stuff that people are willing to pay for? And I think that's just part of being a professional If you just want to hack on stuff in your free time on the weekend, you're right. You do not need to be concerned with anything about revenue. You can just work for free, put in your code and do it for the good of the community. And nothing's wrong with that. But one day you may have to cut that check. And trust me, when you start writing checks to other people, you're going to want to prioritize what you're paying for.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that answer, because it's it's you said it in a different way that I say it, and I'm glad that we've got this, because I need more engineers to hear that message, even if you're not gonna be on stage, right? You're always, somebody's gonna at some point ask you what you do, who you work for, the questions are gonna come in, and I think you should be able to do the two minute, this is what my company does, this is what I do for them. Not about bragging, It's this is what my company does, And I always love to ask developers, where's the revenue model? And they can't tell me where the revenue model is. I'm always like, uh oh, here we go.
0: Also as an engineer is how you prevent from being surprised. Lots of engineers are surprised by reorgs because they may not understand the business structure. Lots of engineers are surprised by a company being bought or sold because they don't know the business model. So if you want to not be surprised all the time by upper level decision-making, you might want to know why they're making those decisions. And understanding how to generate revenue, I think, will help you be able to contribute to some of those decisions,
1: and it will allow you to make better engineering decisions and prioritize all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've always felt that from you. Like, I know that I know two things when I see you on stage. One, this is tech that you're excited about, so now I should be excited about it. Um, and it's tech that's going to add. Maybe I'm not ready to use it, but I know that there's something practical about about what you're teaching, right? And, and this is the other thing I want people to understand. You want, if you're gonna be that person on stage sharing stuff, you gotta be passionate about it. And you gotta get people to be understanding that you're not wasting their time when you're up there. Like, because you really believe in this. If you don't believe in it, why am I listening to you? Right, you've always, you've always had that on stage. It's like, I, and I think other people, maybe they, don't, they can't realize that that's what's drawing me to you, but, but they, they see that, right, it's amazing. I remember the first time you were talking about Kubernetes somewhere, and I was in that, I'll never forget, I tell this story to people all the time because I've decided to spend the last two years really understanding Kubernetes from a developer perspective. I do not want to install my own system. I do not want to manage it. Just point me to one, and I want to be able to configure it. But I remember you giving some of your first talks, and I remember going up to you and saying, Kelsey, I can't visualize what you're doing because you're not sharing with me where the machines are. And you were like, Bill, that's the whole point. The machines go away. And I'm like, Kelsey, but I can't think about it. He's like, Bill, it's it. We're, I'm never going to talk about a machine in any conversation because the idea is that there's compute here. Who cares where it's coming from? That's always stuck in the back of my head. I always share that story story with people, right? Like The abstraction that, that it's trying to create. We were basically at a time i just wonder though and i know you're having a great time at google and you're doing amazing things at google but it would have been cool to work on some mars stuff wouldn't it
0: yeah i think i think it would have been cool but one thing that i've done over the last six years i've gotten way closer to people so the things and the ways i'm able to help people now at this point in my career is very different and i think it has a lot to do with you know maybe the capital i've grown the experiences i've had i've been around the world multiple times I've worked and seen so many challenges that I'm a very different person now than I was six years ago when I was making this decision. And so I think the impact I'm able to have on other people. So maybe I'm not going to be the one that helps people get on Mars directly, but maybe I inspire the person that will.
1: All right. No, that's a beautiful way of seeing it. That's beautiful. All right. We are out of time. I could talk to you for another hour. I, I love the story um, that you shared. I think other people are on the same sort of path Uh, and i didn't even realize the amount of kind of business ownership knowledge that you had early on and and yeah okay that that, that actually fills in some gaps for me uh i mean i don't know you really well i got to meet you a few times but, but i think that's amazing so if anybody kind of wants to reach out and say hi or ask you some questions after listening to this what's the best way for people to reach out to you
0: uh twitter my dms are open uh, at Kelsey Hightower on Twitter. I typically try to make time for one-on-ones where, you know, I can learn from you and you can learn from me. Uh, so if that's something you're interested in, uh, DMs are open on Twitter and, uh, yeah, you'll see me put out stuff on YouTube periodically or something on, on, uh, on GitHub.
1: So last very little thing here. Uh, I want you to just kind of project over the next three years. I have two questions. One, when do we stop using the word Kubernetes? And what do you think the next tech is going to be uh, after this?
0: Yeah, so Linux is what, 30 plus years old, and people still say Linux. So I think Kubernetes will still be talking about Kubernetes in the next 12 years. Someone will be saying Kubernetes. How they talk about it, you know, people might be migrating away from Kubernetes. The future is really apparent right now. All the problems with Kubernetes, all the pain points, all the friction, all the stuff people are building to address that is the future. And we'll give it a name in about 10 years, we'll have enough of those little features, those little glue code, the little bit of gap filling. And when you put those things together, we will give it a name. It will be a set of patterns that are only born from this friction. And once we name it, it will be the new thing and everyone will act shocked and surprised. And, but to me, it's really clear where we're going. Developers have a contract today with operating systems. You make some syscalls, you do a bunch of things, and typically you run as root so you can do everything you want. 10 years ago, that changed fundamentally with containerization, and then of course, later on with Kubernetes. And what Kubernetes says is that the developer contract can no longer be with the OS. It should probably be with the infrastructure itself. So we're gonna give you this container image. And at some point, you will be able to give your app to any system. And that thing will run it, whether you want it to be run globally, or you want it to just run in a certain zone or region, and you will configure it to talk to different data sources. That's it. This whole MySQL and Postgres, those are just protocols. At some point, if we stay on the current trajectory where there's managed services and things like serverless, you can betcha that we'll just end up in a world where you give your application to some system, it will run it, and you configure that system, what data sources that you are willing to accept as input and what data sources you wanna connect to for output. That's it, and we go back full circle to computing will be data structures, and computation over those data structures. Right now, we went through a long zigzag to get back to kind of where we should have been the whole time, and it was probably necessary because now we're doing it in an industry standard way with open interfaces, and we have new development models to experiment in public, and the best ideas stick around, and the other ones fade away over time. So utility compute is definitely in our future, and doesn't mean that all this stuff isn't important because that stuff will run underneath. It's just that less people will have to understand it in order to get value from it.
1: Very, very last question because we have to go. I think GraphQL is going to be the next DSL for everything. So when we talk about there's a data store there and there's a data store there and forget about it's Postgres or SQL. I think GraphQL is going to be that protocol. Do you have any opinions on, on that at all?
0: Well, I think GraphQL works because today because it solves a problem, right? The problem is the way we get queries doesn't match the way we store data. We had an API to deal with that, which was just generic SQL, but it's fraught with problems, right? It's almost like a Turing complete language to have someone tell you, run this query and give me back random data. It's almost impossible to secure. So when I I hear people talk about GraphQL, I think what people are doing now is starting to really put a clean contract between data and the query itself right before it's just random, right? It's like using a non-type language, right? Like, is this a strut? Is it a dictionary? Who cares? Give it to me and we'll figure it out later. And I think what we're trying to do is bring a little bit more discipline on the query side. So instead of people giving me a random query string that I would parse and hope I don't return the wrong object, now what we're doing is giving people a way to type their actual requests. And then I can interpret that in a way that aligns with my security model. I can put RBAC roles and permissions, but I think it's only a step though. I think where we're coming from is a place of SQL queries and randomness. And that middle step is like GraphQL, where we put structure on both sides. My guess is once we're done solving that problem, you're gonna find something that's actually designed with much better intent and much better security model. Cause right now I've seen some GraphQL implementations where it's like, how are you securing that type of thing. And it's really nasty because a developer has to go in and build all of these kind of things that if it comes back like this and you almost need a handler for every field, my guess is there's going to be a lot of mistakes with that. And we're going to have to have something better. So GraphQL addresses one problem and watch the things that come out to address GraphQL's problem. So that's why I always think that these things that we see today are just stepping stones and all the friction they have. That's where the next thing will come from.
1: I love that. I love that. This is solving a problem, but what's going to be solving its problems next and what's going to be solving it's like, I I think that's, I never had that mentality before. I will. I do now. And I think everybody should kind of zero in on that idea, right? GraphQL has just solved a bunch of problems, but it's going to have problems. So same thing. Kubernetes solved a bunch of problems, but it has problems. Wow. Okay. We are out of time. So Kelsey, thank you for spending all this time talking with us, talking about your, your history and uh, everything that you've kind of gone through and where you are in the industry. And thank you for being so accessible to everybody. I really appreciate it.
0: Awesome. Thanks for having me.
1: All right. So this is Bill Kennedy and Kelsey saying thank you for spending all this time with us, and I hope to see everybody again real soon.